Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 44. In this episode, I talk with Kathy Binger about AAC. Don't know what that is? Please have a listen. You won't regret it. After listening, don't forget to check out the website, www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. Speaking of the po- of the podcast website, thank you so much to Bo Bevins, who maintains the podcast website. And he's always on top of it. If something's missing, it's because I haven't given it to him yet. So thank you for your patience. And thank you again for listening. Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 44. Today, I have Kathy Binger, and I'd like her to introduce herself. Hi, I am Kathy Binger. I'm a professor of speech and hearing sciences at the University of New Mexico. I'm a speech language pathologist. I've been at UNM for about 18 years now. And before that, for the better part of a decade, I was a practicing SLP and I've worked in a whole bunch of environments before I went back to school to get my PhD. Um, Mostly preschool, I worked in Head Starts, did some elementary school, a tiny bit of middle school, a little bit of work with adults with developmental disabilities. So it was really um, so valuable to get those years of clinical practice before I went back to get my PhD. And like so many people on your podcast who were um, practicing educators or clinicians before they came on the, um, before they went back to get their PhD, um, I was really inspired to get my PhD um, because of the clinical work. And um, I just kept hearing the voice of a high school teacher saying, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. So instead of leaving the profession, I went back to school to get my PhD and it, it was really the right decision for me. So I've been very happily um, doing research for the last uh, two decades now, really. And um, my main area, as we're going to talk about a lot today, is augmentative and alternative communication, and specifically with children who have developmental disabilities. That's really my population. And also as part of what we're going to talk about today with a huge focus on language development. So um, one of the main things I want to make sure I drive home in all the talks that I give is that the foundation of what I do is not about technology. The foundation of what I do is the same foundation as all the things that you do, Tiffany, and it's, it's about language at the core of all of it. And it's really easy for folks to lose sight of that. So there's a little bit of an introduction. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So we'll definitely be hitting on the topics of AAC language and also uh, your work, uh, pioneering work in implementation science, which the listeners have heard about in a bonus episode recently uh, that we put out before the conference that you also spoke at. So we got a lot to cover. I'm so glad you're here. We were just mentioning how we've met each other when we were doctoral students and we got to work a little bit together in training, then went our separate ways and now we're coming back again. So it's so, so nice to have you on the podcast. I think what we'll do is we'll start out by really letting the listeners know what is AAC or alternative augmentative communication. Yeah. So AAC, augmentative and alternative communication, also often clinically known as AUGCOM for short. So in the research world, it's more called AAC. In the clinical world, you tend to see the term AUGCOM a lot. Um, AAC refers to the use of some kind of assistance to help 
individuals communicate who cannot meet their communication needs through speech alone. So we're talking about folks who um, most often do have some speech, um, but it's not functional enough to meet all of their communication needs. So we're talking about an enormous range of folks with an enormous range of um, diagnoses, or sometimes the kids I work with don't have diagnoses yet. So these can be folks who have developmental disorders. So let's say autism and cerebral palsy and Down syndrome, to name some of the more common ones, a whole slew of syndromes, anything that can really affect a child's ability to talk. Um, I've seen kids with velocardiofacial syndrome, which causes um, velopharyngeal insufficiency, where children have very can have extremely hypernasal speech to the to the extent that they're not really functional with their speech. Um, kids with cognitive impairments as well, of course, um, and and not just kids, but adults. Of course, kids with autism become adults with autism, so adults with developmental disabilities as well, and then uh, folks with acquired disorders as well. So um, traumatic brain injury, stroke being a couple of the big ones. Um, all kinds of dementia, primary progressive aphasia. Um, so AAC can be useful across the board, basically for anyone whose speech isn't functional to meet their communication needs. Um, and then further, another way to look at AAC is to look at aided versus unaided AAC. Unaided simply means you're still using your own body to communicate. You're not using anything external to the body. So sign language is a form of unaided AAC, gestures, gaze, um, basically using your body in any way to help you communicate. Um, that's unaided AAC. And then aided AAC, which tends to be what people think about more when they hear the term OGCOM or AAC. Um, it can be low tech or no tech where you have you know, individual picture symbols that you're using or pictures on a page or a communication book that's all you know, low tech paper-based or no tech paper-based all the way up through highly sophisticated communication devices. Um, thanks Stephen Hawking for those of you who've been around a while um, and you know, with voice output and in recent years um, we've seen much better access in some ways to AAC because we now have software programs that we can put on mobile devices like iPads mm -hmm. that have made AAC solutions so much more affordable for so many more people. So there's, there's a huge range of people we're talking about and also a huge range of technologies within aided AAC that we're talking about as well. How do you determine if a person, uh, adult or child needs or would benefit from AAC? So the bar is really low. <laughs> so the, the bar is, is this child meeting all of his or her communication needs with their speech, including their understanding of what's going on around them, as well as their expressive uh, language needs. And if the answer is no, then we need to be looking at AAC. There's no, um, there's no level of, no set level of intelligibility a person has to have or, or anything like that. And, and something that's really, really important that I want to get across, because this is probably the number one myth about AAC with children. Um, the myth is that children, that, that AAC may prevent a child from talking. And we now know with absolute certainty that that's not true. Anybody who's worked clinically a lot with AAC has known that from their own practice for years. We now really have the research evidence to back that up, which a lot of us are, you know, heaving huge size relief um, of now having that evidence base out there that we can say that with real assurance. Um, what we see happening with 
kids who are given access to appropriate AAC as well as appropriate instruction is that it can help their speech. Um, not it, it does not hurt their speech and it can certainly help their speech. And there may be a huge, I shouldn't say huge, but a number of factors that can really contribute to that. Um, for example, using a voice output device like an iPad with a, a communication app um, every time a child selects a picture to say a word, they hear that word said in exactly the same way every single time. So they're getting that, that uh, a regular speech model um, for them and, they, and they're making those selections themselves and they're getting that feedback. Um, so that may be one part of it. Um, and then there's another level to that too, which is um, that we don't wanna ever be denying a child the ability to communicate if they can. So um, I'll give you a quick example of, I, I work with preschoolers mostly exclusively for the last number of years. And I hear the same story time and time and time and time again from families who come see us, which is my child is frustrated um, or my child is shutting down or both. So we have these, even you know two, three-year-old kids who are coming in who don't have access to a viable form of communication and they're getting really frustrated. And then it creates all these additional problems. So AAC can also be used to help prevent um, behavioral issues that are really just a form of communi frustrated communication um, and as well as support their language skills as well. That makes good sense. I could imagine that, you know, you almost might feel a bit defeated if you come in as a parent and they, and, you know, someone says you should use this device to help your child communicate. It's not a use it or lose it situation Absolutely with not. speech. Like it's, you know, that's going to help them communicate and be less frustrated and get reinforcement for um, maybe producing words and understanding language in a different way uh, because of having that support. I'm wondering with the kids you see, who, uh, how do they typically get to you or how do they get an AAC? Yeah, so, um, oh, there's one thing I wanted to say about oh, yeah. for, for a second. Um, to think about it from another perspective, if you think about who kids are around, kids are almost exclusively around people who are talking to them. Yeah. And people, you know, so they're, what are they getting bombarded with all the time? And I mean, bombarded in a good way. Like they're constantly getting exposed to people who are talking. So what do they want to do? They want to do, they're hardwired to do what everybody else does. Like they would talk if they could, <laughs> they're not being stubborn about it. Um, there's some issue that's going on or a host of issues potentially going on that are, that are preventing them from being more communicative. And we may not know what that is when the kids are really young, but whatever it is, um, they're going to talk if and when they can talk and could they potentially also benefit from speech therapy to help them? Absolutely. So this isn't an either or situation where you have to pick one or the other, or should you pick one or the other? It's, um, you know, we want to be supporting all forms of communication. Um, so, so how do kids come to me? So for me in particular, you know, it's going to be through our recruitment efforts and building partnerships with um, mostly SLPs, speech language pathologists in our community and um, working with them and, um, you know, hopefully doing uh, good services in our intervention studies so that they wanna keep sending folks to us over time. I mean, it's really, you know, in particular, it's that. Um, you, you find folks at all kinds of different stages in the process, but mostly with the kids I work with, we're usually their first stop. You know, so an educator or a clinician, 
um, has gotten a flyer or has, you know, gotten, we've reached out to them in some way and they realize that they do have kids on their caseload who are meeting these criteria of um, not meeting all of their, all of their communication needs with their speech. Um, so. Oh, so they don't have AAC use when they come to you? I guess Most I'm kind of, of getting don't. at that. Okay. No, oh, that's very, very me. few of them do. There's a huge oh. problem with that. People are still tending truly throughout the country. And as far as I can tell throughout the world of um, there's still, there's, there's still a lack of awareness of getting folks to us early on. Um, a lot of parents who are, um, I'm going to say privileged and savvy, you know, who, who, and educated, who, who have those means will go online and go seek things out for themselves. A lot of other families, including a lot of the families I work with, don't really know how to do that or haven't, you know, it's not something that they've really thought about doing. And so um, kids still go years and years without access to AAC who can benefit. Um, I could tell you story after story of um, kids in high school who have cognitive disabilities or who have cerebral palsy, who have never had access to a functional means of communication. Those are still very, very common stories. I'm, I'm falling out of my chair on that one. I did not realize that. So that yeah. is, uh, wow. If, if the listener has concerns, how would they reach out uh, if they're interested in AAC for either their children or some kids they might be seeing? Yeah. So um, that, that's, there's not a, always a direct, easy answer for that. Um, and that's partly why, you know, there are so many folks who've sought out each other online, families who've sought out each other online, because we don't have enough AAC experts out there by any stretch of the imagination. Um, unfortunately, some families have sought out help and it hasn't necessarily been the best fit for their child. Um, if we don't have really family-centered practices, there may end up being a recommendation that's made that's not ultimately the best thing for their child. And then that's really frustrating. So we have all these complicating factors. Um, however, like I would say as a general rule, um, go online, look up, you know, whatever state you're in, whatever community you're in, do some searching for um, your local speech language pathology, private practices, and um, find out who in your community, how, you can ask who has, do you have anybody who has AAC or augmentative communication expertise in your private practice, in the schools by law, every school district is supposed to be um, providing more generally assistive technology services, more specifically AAC services for kids who need them. There, it's the roll of the dice um, in terms of what kind of services you're actually gonna find in your school. Um, New Mexico is like most others, well, I shouldn't say that. Every, every state is different. Some states have, um, like Arizona, for example, in Pennsylvania, I know that they have um, a statewide organization with experts in place who can do initial AAC assessments. So you can also, you know, go through the Department of Ed um, and find out who's in place, if there's anything like that in place. Um, there are some states that don't have things like that. New Mexico is unfortunately one of those states where it's really hit or miss depending on what school district you are in. Um, some school districts will have an assistive technology and or AAC specialist. So you can always ask your child's SLP um, 
what kind of AAC services are provided in the schools. The schools by law are required to provide those services for children who quote unquote qualify, um, which means they need to have an assessment, but whether or not that school district actually has someone on staff with that expertise is another question. And then the family has to decide, okay, can I go to a private practice? Do I have the funds? Do I have the medical um, insurance? And you know, all of, all of that kind of stuff. Um, how much can I, you know, it's, it's a negotiating kind of process of trying to sort through all of that. So it's, it's really, it's really hit or miss depending on where you are, but um, definitely worth starting out at the school level to see what is available through your school. And if not, and you can want to spend the time and effort on it, you can really push to make sure that the school ultimately does provide those services because they're legally required to. Um, and you can also seek out private services as well. If there's a university, every, I mean, every, every state in the union in the US has a speech and hearing program. So you can also always go to um, university speech and hearing programs and ask, because usually there's somebody, you know, somebody like me or somebody clinical in, at the university setting who, if they don't have that expertise, there should be somebody there who has some idea of who in the area does have that kind of expertise. So long answer to what should be a simple, should have been a simple answer to your question, but there isn't one. Well, the, a theme across a lot of episodes on this podcast are under identification and inconsistency and in support. So yep. it's right in line with what, you know, yep. we see, I, I just uh, was surprised. I didn't realize it was also the case and uh, so glad you're doing this work. I'd love to hear about some of the research you're doing to address some of these issues and just in general, the work you're doing in AC and children. Sure, I'd be, of course, you know, what do we love to talk about more than our own research? So <laughs> that's what we love to do. So um, so I'll start with a little story. I, I have to definitely uh, start by talking about my research partner, Jennifer Kent Walsh. She is at the University of Central Florida and she and I met when we were doctoral students at Penn State. And um, she really started off doing a line of research on communication partner instruction with the knowledge and understanding that um, none of this matters if the communication partners aren't on board. You can't just pull a kid who needs AAC off into a room by yourself and expect any changes to leak over into the rest of that child's life. So we really need to be working with families and working with educators. They play an absolutely fundamental role in a child's success, communication success. Um, so she really started off doing communication partner line of research. And I started off with the um, language development line of research and they definitely overlap. We've been working over time to bring those two lines of research together, but our, those were our two starting points. And we've basically been doing almost all of our work together over the years. And um, sometimes projects we, we have are more on one side of that line than the other, but, but really that's ultimately what we're, where we're heading is to create um, usable, functional, clinically relevant programs um, to, for AAC intervention programs for families, educators, and um, their children who need AAC. So that's a very broad sort of snapshot of the work that we do. So important for the listeners to hear that it's not just something that a child is referred to a speech language pathologist gets their device and only the SLP, you know, works with the child on their device or their, you know, augmentation of some sort, uh, that it's really the whole community around the child. That it is, you know, understand. without that, it's doomed to failure, yeah. really. I mean, there's a huge, 
um, we'll talk about, you know, of course, AAC is not just about devices, but that's what people think about. There's a huge abandonment rate that happens. And, um, you know, people go through all the time and effort and money to secure what are sometimes very expensive AAC devices, and then nobody uses them. And when nobody uses them, there are always good reasons for that, you know, and it has, some of that has to do, I think, with um, how much the families and educators are involved in the process itself, like really taking that family-centered and educator-centered approach um, to make sure that everybody's on board, everybody understands how this is going to benefit everyone, how this is going to make the child more successful in, in the classroom. What's more rewarding to a teacher than having a child succeed? Mm -hmm. So we need to have our teachers on board from the beginning and talk practically about what their classrooms look like, um, what's feasible in the classroom, what's not feasible in the classroom, what supports need to be in place um, and be in the IEP in order to make sure that the child um, has a chance of success and can be participating more. And if we go back, um, I'm sure, I, actually I've, read, I've listened to, I think all your episodes, I don't know how much you've talked about the WHO ICF, but the, the World Health Organization um, International Classification System. I mean, really it comes from um, the World Health Organization really saying, okay, at the center of everything that we do needs to be um, participation and activities right? Like who cares what we're doing behind closed doors if we're not making a functional difference in the chosen activities of the child and the child's daily life activities, whether at home, we're talking about dressing, feeding, going to the store, whatever, interacting with family. And at school, we're talking about access to the curriculum, building peer relationships, all those things. That's where we have to be making a difference. And if we're not making a difference there, what's the point of any of it? Exactly. I think another, you touched on an, a, just another theme that cuts across many of the episodes, and that is that things are a developmental iterative process. So I can imagine if the goal is to have something functional and then they, you know, the family spends the time <clears throat> to work with an SLP or someone that can support them, and then they're using the device, but there's no follow-up, there's no kind of iterative development to make the device individualized to the child or whatever setup is, I use device by default, but like you said, there's a huge range. It doesn't have to be a expensive device. It can be paper and many other um, types of um, support, but if it's just, if there's no sense of development and, you know, across time, it's just not going to make an improvement because the child's developing too. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So what are some of the current advances in AAC that you're working on now? So um, I'll tell you about a few things that we're doing. So uh, the main thing that we've been spending a massive amount of time on for the past five years are two randomized controlled trials. And um, I think Shane in the last episode just spent a lot of time talking yes. about um, RCTs and what randomized controlled trials are. So we're running two of them. Like you, Tiffany, I am swearing. I will never do it again. <laughs> I know I was, you know, I was at, where was I at? It was last ASHA. I went to a conference that had, or I went to a talk and it was talking about levels of evidence and it had the pyramid, you know, it was like the level of evidence, the highest level of evidence it said was the, um, what was it? A, like a, a review, a, a consensus around multiple randomized control yes. trials that someone wrote up. And then right below that was randomized control trials. I was like, I want the top there because I can just read about randomized control trials and write about them because <laughs> doing them. <laughs> 
very, very hard, so needed, but uh, unbelievably difficult for so many reasons and just frustrating uh, all around. So thank you for, thank you for generating the data around randomized control trials. Yeah. I mean, we uh, we need it. We we do. We could like, I'm going to do a little offshoot and get on my soapbox and I'll come back. But I I think we need to rethink about the whole I think it's a stupid pyramid in some yeah, ways because yeah, there's yeah. plenty of experimental control lower down on the pyramid. And some of these things, you know, this comes out of a medical model that does not really apply all that well to the families and educators and kids we work with. And it's not practical. And we end up doing weird things that don't make good clinical sense. And so I think another area that I don't really hear anybody talking about much is we need to do a rethink of that pyramid and construct something different that we, where we still have rigor. Don't get me wrong. I'm all about scientific rigor of our work. We just need to think about it differently and go about that in a, I think in some ways, maybe not a fundamentally different way, but, um, yeah, I, I, what I can tell you for sure is I will never do another study the way that we originally planned to do the one that we're doing right now, another project, um, yeah, because so you. much of it just doesn't make, yeah. it do, it's not, it doesn't make practical sense. And Shane said um, it in episode two, um, you know, we, we say we're doing a randomized control trial and we are, but we have so many adaptations that we're making with sustainability yeah. in mind that we can still be rigorous. Like you said, I've, I've often thought like, and said, you can be rigorous, but you can adapt to what makes sense. Because ultimately, if you are too rigorous and it never applies to any clinical setting, what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. And that goes to our shared love of implementing science, which we'll get to, but yeah, um, yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah. But I will (laughs) tell you about all that being said, I'll tell you about the RCTs. So um, we, we did something insane that is another thing I'll never do again, which is we have one one funded project with two RCTs within it, um, which we were thinking that we needed to do that in order to get funding. And I know the things know we do for the things we do for funding. Yeah, the things we do for funding. <laughs> so um, I, I now know I don't ever need to do that again either. But in any case, we're, we're running these two RCTs. Um, they're, they focus on preschoolers. Yeah. There are um, study one, which we often call it just study one. It's three and four-year-old kids who... Um, can have any of a range of diagnoses or non-diagnoses. A lot of them are misdiagnosed too. They often get misdiagnosed with childhood apraxia of speech. That's the most common misdiagnosis we see. Um, They can't have autism or Down syndrome. Those are the only two um, that we exclude. They need to be able to direct select, meaning that they have a, a finger, a fist, you know, something that they can use to knuckle to um, access a certain number of symbols on a display because that's what we're using for our intervention. Um, Another side note, we need tons of intervention with kids who have more motoric limitations. Um, And those are some of the hardest kids to study. But in any case, you know, our kids have to be able to direct select and they have to have, um, and there's of course a particular way we're measuring it. They have to have intelligibility of, or I should say comprehensibility of less than 50% um, on a task that we give them to do. And that's, we have an unfamiliar listener listening to a recording of them. And um, that's what we base their intelligibility on. And then study two is basically um, the same other than instead of two, three and four-year-old kids with severely unintelligible speech, 
their three to five-year-old kids with Down syndrome. So that's why we excluded the kids from Down syndrome from study one. Um, the study one kids also have to have relatively intact receptive language. Study two kids, clearly not, because um, they all have Down syndrome and a lot of those kids, most of those kids don't have intact receptive language. So we really wanted to branch out. A lot of our work has been more with the study one kind of kids. We've really been, I mean, I can't go to a conference ever without being asked what about these other kids. So it was high time we started um, looking at those other kids as well. And so the intervention is basically a four month intervention. We measure their progress once a month and um, it's a play-based intervention. We have a bunch of play routines that we do with them. We have communication displays where all the vocabulary that they need for any given um, session, like let's say it's, we're doing vehicles that day, the vocabulary on their display has to do with playing with vehicles. So they'll have verbs like crash and um, objects like car and truck and whatever else, tractor. Um, and then some of the vocabulary stays the same on all the displays. So we have these um, puppets that we use um, and animals. And so the animals are always on there. And, and some of the other, um, I call it the grammatical glue is always the same. You know, they'll have I and you and is, am, and are, and um, some other, a couple of bound morphemes. They have the S on there and ing. So um, some of the, some of the vocabulary is the same. Some of it changes from display to display. And um, so that's true for both study one and study two. We do monthly measurement sessions with them. And then um, a hopefully three month maintenance session with them as well. And then of course, you know, all the usual testing in the beginning to make sure we have a good sense of who these kids are. Um, we got chopped off at the knees during COVID. Um, we got hit truly the worst possible moment. Um, we were, you know, like we were like partway through year, we were about two and a half years, which means we had both RCTs, you know, it takes a while to get the first one up and going. And then it takes a while to get the second one up and going. We were going great guns with both of them. We had both of them fully cooking, doing really well. And then like everybody else, one day to the next, that was it. Unlike a lot of other projects, we were unable to flip a switch and focus over to telepractice because we're in the middle of two RCTs and the yeah. data wouldn't have been meaningful. Right. If, right, you can't combine yeah. all those things together yeah. anymore. Yeah. So, um, and that's going to take us into the happy silver lining story eventually of all this of what we did do um, during COVID. But to keep it on this story for the moment, we have um, picked back up since things have opened up again. We're going great guns in that right now. Um, we're almost at the end of year five, but um, we have a no cost extension year. So um, with very little money, uh, so we're, but we're still at one of our study sites. This is going on at both University of New Mexico and also University of Central Florida in Orlando. And we'll continue to collect data at the UCF study site. Um, and I think we're at the end of the day, you know, we'll have some really useful data. It's just not going to be the numbers yeah. that we had Thanks. originally planned. So, you and everyone, you were yeah. all together on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's been really hard. Um, but so so that that's called what we call that is AAC Glee, G-L-I, meaning AAC, you know, happiness, AAC um, generative language intervention is what that stands for. So AAC Glee is AAC um, generative language intervention. And there are really three fundamental components to our AAC intervention, which is 
the same three components you see in, in I think all really solid interventions, which I call it the three tips, T-I-P-Z, to effective communication. You need the T is technology, the I is instruction, and the P is personalization. So T-I-P with a small Z, technology, instruction, and personalization. Um, the technology, I wish the T weren't first because it's not primarily about the technology. It's with, if you don't have the instruction, you cannot just hand a kid an AAC device, however great or well-suited it is for the kid and expect them to take off on their own. Very, very few of them can do that. Um, almost all of them need a level of um, instruction and also personalization because we all have things that go on in our lives that are different from other people. And so we need that personalization as well. So that's um, that's the, one of the main things that we've, that is the main thing we've been doing for the last number of years. Um, yeah, so. And what's that silver lining? So the silver lining is uh, the measurement work that oh, we've been great. doing. Oh, great, great, um, I'll hear about that. Yeah, so when we got shut down, um, we spent the first length of time figuring out how to do data sharing in a serious way across both our study sites. I mean, that's the kind of thing that whoever thinks about that, but we had hundreds and hundreds of hours of video files that are huge files, not to get too much in the weeds with your audience here, but just the, the amount of time, effort, and work that it takes to be able to share those from one university to the next in a way that's approved and is safe and that's protecting the data and all that stuff. Like there's just a whole level of, oh, crap, how are we going to do? And nobody can be in the lab. Everybody's working from home. Yeah. So you don't, you can't just keep things on lab computers. I mean, that, you know, so it took us a while, of course, to sort through all that. Um, and then we, I mean, I, but I did know immediately how we were going to spend our time because, um, the way I think about it is, you know, we were originally going to do the two RCTs and then we were going to do this measurement project. What ended up happening is, okay, we're doing the two RCTs, but at a much scaled down level than we had originally planned. And we're doing the initial stages of our measurement work. So here, so the background is that, you know, unlike the, all of the literacy stuff that you do, Tiffany, and the spoken language um, stuff, where people have been validating measures for decades now, right? Like think about the number absolutely. of publications on MLU that are out there oh, floating around, right? Although there are some things that are still missing, like developmental appropriateness or some of the yeah. things we're talking <laughs> we're about more now. We're still working on it, but we but, do have a strong uh, Yeah, there's, but you know, things like yeah. type token ratio or whatever, like pick one. There are all these things that have been studied and measures for kids who use spoken language to communicate essentially none of that work has been done in the AAC world. Mm. So how do we monitor progress in a valid and reliable way? And it's not even something that's, it's been talked about a little bit, but there hasn't been a whole lot of discussion. You know, you can find bits and pieces here and there, but there just hasn't been this big push to do this. But it's a massive need, um, especially, you know, researchers out there really fundamentally understand the, the need for good measures. We need people to accurately measure what, some, what we're doing and they need to be developmentally appropriate as well. And so what I just think is so elegant and awesome is that we are, we have this really unique opportunity to validate a whole host of measures all at once because we're borrowing heavily from the known valid measures in spoken language, which we cannot assume 
are going to be valid for kids who need AAC. And I'll give you a firm example of that in a minute. Mm -hmm. But we have these ideas of things that work as we're tracking progress over time. We want to track how kids are doing with their grammar development, with their semantic development, et cetera. Um, so we can borrow some measures, we can adapt some measures, and then we can look at new measures as well. So we spend a lot of time thinking about what those things might be as a first shot. And I think we had, we just had a public, our first publication about this just came out within the last couple of weeks. Um, it was a thesis project that was the size of a dissertation. <laughs> so uh, that my, my thesis student was wonderful that, you know, I mean, there was so many people working at both study sites on this for, you know, solidly, this was basically all we did for more than a year, developing operational definitions for 13 measures. Wow. Um, and doing this initial reliability checks, um, both inter-rater and intra-rater reliability checks for 13 measures. Um, and that was the work, that was our COVID work um, that we did. So really pleased about the first publication that just came out. We had some really nice findings. Um, and you know, one of the big take-home messages is, is that we cannot assume that the measures that we use in one arena work in the other. So I'll give you one very tangible example, I mentioned MLU, mean length of utterance, a minute ago. People have used that as a measure, but people have also known that there are problems with it. Um, when you apply it to using aided AAC for children who are using picture symbols to communicate. Um, two of the problems have to do with relevance and word order. So let's talk about relevance first. If a child has an AAC device in front of them, or have a bunch of AAC, they have picture symbols in front of them that they're using to communicate, um, they can push whatever button they want. <laughs> they can just mess around. They, can, they don't have to be you know, saying things that have anything to do with the context, or they can just be exploring. They, so there's this question that does not arise in spoken communication by and large, other than kids with autism, um, of is what they're saying even relevant to the context? Mm. Is this something intentional? Like that's another question too. Is this intentional or not? Um, which are two related but different things. Um, so we need to establish, but behaviorally, um, whether or not the words that the child is choosing are relevant or not. And we would argue that we should only be counting the symbols that they select that are relevant. Um, when we're calculating MLU. So if half the words in an utterance are relevant and half are not, let's say there are four words, two are relevant, two aren't, we should probably only be counting two of those words as we count as we count for calculating MLU. Um, and then does the word, in, oh, go, ahead. go ahead. I was no, just go gonna ahead. say, does that result in inflated MLU then? Absolutely, okay, right. So, right. Okay, so, so if you have a child and you're getting a mean length of utterance, you take a language sample, you listen to all the words they say, and you determine, you know, this is the length of utterance of, you know, this in sentence is kind of, kind of right. similar to utterance. utterance but, yeah. Um, so then you'd say like four words, three words, two words, five words, but you never really think about, did they intend to, or was that relevant to the conversation or the sample? And so they might get a mean, you know, utterance of three, let's say three. So on average, their sentence is three words. And you're saying that what you saw was that they would 
push multiple ones, but maybe it was an exploration stage or wasn't as relevant. So it could look like their mean symbol use, you know, how many symbols they push for topic or sentence that it could look like they were at four or five when they really, if you looked at relevance, were only at two. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and we certainly theoretically, we would expect that to um, happen more on the early end of using AAC where children are in that exploration phase. Um, it may be more of an issue longer for some kids with autism um, and, or you know, that's also up to interpretation. How good of a job are we doing in interpreting what they yeah. think is relevant? So that's, it's not an e always an easy thing to establish, but um, we have a, actually one of the papers I gave you to post um, the 2020 paper that has Nancy Holler, Nancy Harrington and Quinn Hollerback on it, where we talk in depth about some of these things and um, that relevance question and, and where we would expect that. Like we really look at that a low level phase one kind of issue um, of something, but, but something we need to be tracking. So it maybe it's maybe a really good measure. That's a unique AAC measure for clinicians to be using early on is just the percentage of relevant symbols that the child selects. Like that can be a way to monitor some progress there. Whereas we tend to just wait to measure it until they are relevant, right? Like, but we're missing this. Maybe we can show some real progress with these kids in the initial stages um, when it, it people are just frustrated that they're saying a lot of irrelevant things. Well, let's measure it. Like, let's show that they're increasing their relevance in um, what they're what they're producing. So, so that's one piece of it that we think is important, and it's going to be more of an issue, obviously, for some kids than others. Um, we see some kids who really don't have an issue with that at all. Um, what an important part of the work you're doing, because with randomized control trial, the backbone is measurement, because how do you know it's effective if you don't have a measure yeah. that measures change accurately? So I can imagine in your case, that could be really tricky because if there's an exploration phase that makes the MLU look longer yeah. and then over time, it actually goes down yeah. and that's the opposite of what you'd want to right. see in spoken language. Cause the whole goal in spoken language intervention is to get the MLU longer, to get longer, more complex sentences that a child's producing to convey their wants and needs. And you might see the reverse pattern. So I can see that yeah. being a really tricky aspect of that work. So that really is a silver lining. Yeah. And well, and, and uh, the other huge piece of that, that's been a known issue in AAC for aided AAC for ages is word order. Like you don't see those problems with word order that you see in spoken language. We've done some work to show that um, some preliminary, very preliminary work, but that showed some real patterns of it tending to be a problem more in certain types of utterances than other types. And we have some thoughts about why that may be happening. Um, but in any case, um, kids do mix up the order of things and, and there's no people have done, um, there are a couple groups, one group in particular has done quite a bit of work trying to see if there are particular patterns that children tend to have. For example, do most children tend to put the verb first and then put, you know, or, you know, what do they have? What we see is, nope, <laughs> like uh, within children and across children, there's a lot of variability um, in, in that, at least yeah, we could, I don't want to go too far down that road, but um, but we know that there are some issues with word order with these kids. Um, we really need to look at the nature of the word order, not with typically developing kids we bring in to do AAC research with. I think hopefully that ship is pretty much sailed because I think there's some fundamental issues with doing that. But with our kids who are really needing AAC, we still see some issues with that. And so, um, 
you know, do you want to give kid credit? Let's take a sentence like um, cow in barn. I overuse that example, but whatever. Uh, and let's say the kid says cow barn in. Do you really want to give a kid full credit for having a three word utterance? Um, if the kid says cow barn in or barn in cow or in barn cow, I don't like, I don't want to give the kid full credit for that. So with our new MLU measure that we're developing, at least for the moment as a first shot at it, we're just giving the kid half credit if they have a word order issue in, in the utterance. And if the word order is such a mess that you don't even know what the utterance is, they don't get any credit. Right. Um, right. So, so we have a little formula that we've developed for, we call it um, weighted mean length of utterance and symbols, mm. where you take the child's number of relevant symbols times their word order score, which is going to be a zero, one, or a 0.5. And that's their word order score for each utterance. Mm. So, you know, that, I mean, we could do, a, you know, we could probably do a five-year project or a 10-year project just on that and really looking at what's the best formula for weight and at different point, And should it change over different points in time? Um, as a child gets longer and longer utterances, they make one word order error. Do you really want to chop it in half? Like, no, we don't want to do that. So we're not sure what to do about that yet, but early on, we're feeling pretty good about that measure right now. So that's, that's just one example of um, the most complicated one for sure, but of some of the measurement work that we're doing and trying to sort out these previously unsolved problems. And then, um, going through that quite painful process of validating measures of, all right, we need to look at reliability. We need to integrate reliability and rater reliability. We need to look at developmental sensitivity. We need, you know, there are a whole host of um, factors that we need to look at and have. So that's really what we're hoping is going to be our next big project to come out of all of this is to do a dedicated project just with the, continuing the measurement work and looking at other aspects toward validation of these measures. I hope you do because it, it really does tie right back to that functionality we mentioned in use because if you want to determine whether something's working, uh, you have to have the good, appropriate, uh, reliable, and valid and you know measurement to determine yeah. if it really is. It can't be subjective. It has to be something that's much more objective to determine if it's working for the child and how it's helping them to function and improve over time. So, yeah. And then yeah, there's the cool. researcher dilemma of, okay, do we put off doing intervention research until yeah. we have all these valid measures, you know, so it's this constant sort of, all right, how do we juggle all of this? Cause we can't, okay, that's 20 years. Are we really not going to do any intervention research for the next 10 years, 20 years? No, we're not going to. So it's a juggling act and a selling act toward funding too, of trying to convince people to, fund the intervention research while we are still doing the measurement research as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think that approach of doing it at the same time makes the most sense for our clients and that we serve, but yeah, it's a hard sell sometimes because they each need their own time, their own day in the sun, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we actually, we can't do the measurement work without the intervention because right. we need kids who are making progress with yeah. AAC in order to you know, given what we know about the what AAC services that are out there, finding kids who are really competent um, users of AAC is not easy either. So we kind of have to create those kids ourselves. Sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, and it really leads us right to thinking, and I want to chat with you about implementation science. So you've begun writing about implementation science in our field. Uh, could you remind our listeners what implementation science is? They did hear that on a previous episode, but I'd love for them to hear some example of, of your work and how that has been transformed by implementation science frameworks. 
Sure. Um, well, let's start with the definition. Uh, this is the only like quote unquote anything I'm going to say in this episode. Um, this comes a good definition that I like from the University of Washington um, that implementation science is the scientific study of methods and strategies that facilitate the uptake of evidence-based practice and research into regular use by practitioners and policymakers. So essentially, the goal of implementation science is to bridge the research to practice gap, right? Um, those of us who are researchers, I think, who are paying attention, we all know that there's this big gap between the research that's out there and what actually happens in clinical practice. This is not a problem that is specific to speech language pathology or to literacy or to, this is a problem across the medical world. This is a problem across the, the educational world. So nobody's just out there picking on the SLP researchers and hopefully we're doing a good job now, a better job now picking on ourselves about this. Yeah, and um, I think it also is just not the, the research to practice gap, but also that practice to research gap. So it's absolutely. not just that practitioners aren't implementing research, it's that researchers also need to adapt their work to fit practice. So it kind of, it's bi-directional that way. Too. Absolutely bi-directional. Yeah, it works in both ways. And um, when, when researchers are not paying attention to what's going on clinically, this is where we get really into it is what is going on on the front lines, what are, what are um, educators, clinicians really experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, you know, if we just keep creating interventions that no one can do because no one can see a child for that many hours a week in a clinical setting, then we're wasting tax dollars and time and valuable resources. And we need to do better. We need to be better. Um, we meaning researchers, like we have to fundamentally change the way that we do business. 100%. And, and the people who, so I'm, I'm, I've hit a I go back and sometimes I feel really discouraged about this, Tiffany. I don't know if you do too, but you're just such a positive person. But what really has given me uh, sparked new hope for me is you because of the conference from a few weeks ago that you have just poured your heart and soul into. And to see that this movement that really started back in 2014 with the conference implementation science summit that Nancy Minghetti, Leslie Olswang, the good folks from the American Speech Language Hearing Foundation put forth, like this was what lit a fire under me and Jennifer Kent Walsh too, and some others. And here we are, what, eight years later now? Um, and sometimes feeling like, you know, sitting on a study panel at a <laughs> feeling like, ah, like, has, nothing, has nothing changed? What is going on here? Like, this is such an uphill battle. But then going to your conference a few weeks ago and seeing how much there is this groundswell that's really happening. Um, so in terms of my own work, like one of the things that I'm so proud to have been a, a part of and a founder of is um, an implementation science study group that we started, oh my gosh, it's been four or five years now that grew out of frustration um, and understanding that we needed to have a grassroots kind of effort to educate ourselves about implementation science. And most of that group is made up of people who are a lot younger than I am, people who are just starting out. We had some doc students and postdocs who are all now assistant professors of the group. And you know they're the ones who are really gonna shift, insist and shift the discipline, but we also need people like you and people like me who've been around longer who are going to help make sure that their 
um, that these projects that are focused, that are building in from the beginning components that make sure that the product at the end is actually going to be useful to people and functional, there have to be some people from who are mid-career and beyond who are supportive of that work as well to make sure that we're continuing to shift the bar in that direction. So, you know, we can, we can talk about my work and your work um, with implementation science from a number of perspectives. One is our own personal research, but a lot of it is also these other things um, of working with folks around. And I don't, I mean, I'm not in charge of that group anymore. They, they're up and going and running and like they're doing a much better job than I ever did with that group. Like they're so enthusiastic and have this really solid, solid base. Um, and I'm still kind of gasping for breath going, oh my God, how am I going to do this? <laughs> well, I'll say that conference could only, that conference could only happen because of the diligent work that was done by your group and ASHA and the ASHA Foundation um, for all those years. That was really the, like you said, groundswell. That was yeah. you know, standing on the shoulders of giants like yourself have been really talking about this for some time and thinking about it. That's how that conference could happen. Yeah, it's, it's takes a, it takes a lot of people and it, and it comes from the best possible place, mm-hmm. which is what do we care about at the end of the day? What we care about at the end of the day is that, the children we work with, in our case, it's children, our clients we work with have better outcomes and are meeting their communication potential. And if that is our goal, we have to be more objective at looking at our own work and more objective at looking at and not putting our hands on our hips and shaking our fingers and looking down from our ivory tower saying, why aren't you clinicians out there doing this work? Well, it's our fault. Our fingers need to be pointed at ourselves and we need to be doing our work differently from the very beginning so that we're building programs that are actually useful and not giving other people guilt complexes um, about it. And so that I think this whole way of doing business is, is so inspiring because it levels the playing field where we're truly involving our stakeholders, educators, families, you know, from the very beginning um, and building programs that actually make sense. And I've always been so interested in, in seeing the work hit clinical practice because of my own experience as a clinician. And, and that's what drives my work is to improve the lives of the people I serve. I will say that, you know, so many other fields are so far ahead of us in this way. One of them is the yeah. Cancer Institute yeah. I mean, and Cancer health. Institute. Yeah. And I, and as a cancer patient myself, I saw that firsthand in every study I was in, every study involved my input, yes. um, for, even basic science studies involved my input. Uh, there was always an eye towards sustainability. Uh, the National Institute of Cancer uh, has been you know, the leaders and implementation yeah, David Chambers science. and I mean, I mean it's, it's incredible, amazing yeah. what they're doing, you know, and, and we, as a field, all fields could really learn from that model yeah. uh, to maintain rigor, uh, but do it in a way that makes the you know, uptake of uh, you know, scientific discoveries immediately yeah. applicable to the client. Cause isn't that what we all want anyway, as our and, own and doing and, it the old school way doesn't work. Like no, we know this no. now. I will also say, people of our point in our career and our mentors, there are some folks out there who are on board and can. You know, there are other folks for whom that is a terrifying thought to look back at your own career and to say, yeah. to be able to admit that 
the work that you've just spent all your life doing is not making the impact because of your own decisions. But we have to have humility around that. And instead, I think recast that as, okay, this is the foundation, but now we have to change. And so, um, you know, there, there's a good foundation there, but there's also a huge, but there, which is, um, I feel, I will say unequivocally, I don't think we should be funding any more studies, any more clinical practice studies in our discipline that do not integrate some aspect of implementation science into them. It just doesn't make sense. No, I agree. And, and it's, and we have to think about the use of our tax dollars. I mean, I, I've made so many mistakes along the way in terms of just thinking that, Oh, I was trained. Like my role is to create the science and someone else will implement it or someone else will figure out how to adapt it. Um, That was what I thought my role was uh, even though it felt pretty uncomfortable. And, and I just, I think that we have to acknowledge that doesn't happen. That just doesn't happen. I mean, there's great science showing that you don't just do science and then it gets into clinical practice. That's not how it works. Um, And so I think we have to acknowledge that we've tried that approach. It doesn't work. So now we have to adapt to make sure that what we're doing matters for the clients we serve. And that's a whole science of implementation science. It is. And, And changing and thinking carefully about the systems that we have to change within our institutions to support that. Um, something that I've talked about with Natalie Douglas, who's a great, um, has a huge focus on implementation science and her area of study is with um, skilled nursing, uh, in skilled nursing. And um, she talks about how the publication needs to be the first step, not the last step, you know, in terms of dissemination. Um, it, peer-reviewed publications that are sitting in research journals, uh, you know, I don't think clinicians should feel badly who are out there who aren't constantly having their noses in the literature and trying to implement. That stuff was not written for them. That stuff was written for a research audience. Those are not clinical. Those are research papers. They are written to, they are sent to other researchers. They are reviewed by other researchers. They have to meet research standards. I was a clinician for a lot of years and tried to do the right thing. And I was so frustrated, I almost left the discipline. I mean, I seriously almost left. I thought I was going to leave the discipline because I felt so badly and so guilty all the time about not doing the things that I was taught to do. But it's, it's, it's not the right way to think about it. It's we have to do our jobs differently. And those kind of peer review publications need to be step one. Not, oh, yeah, I, I not agree. Um, I, I agree, Natalie. I really connected on that during the implementation science conference because I think that our publications need to be, it's, just, it's saying the same thing in a slightly different way. I think our publications need to be the secondary product. The first product has to be, how do we communicate with our stakeholders in a way that is accessible to them? And then the publications are secondary to that. So for instance, you know, working with school districts, we, um, and my collaborator, Rosanna Comosadu, created this amazing white paper, quote unquote, but it was basically just a report to the district to say, here's what we've done with you. Yeah. What do you think? And we had this great discussion around it. And it was like, here's the data. Um, how can that change what you're doing? How can we do a better job and what we do next year? Then from that, a scientific paper came forth mm-hmm. and it wasn't the reverse. The scientific mm-hmm. paper didn't drive the dissemination. The product that mattered to our partner drove the, the dissemination and then the paper came after. Uh, and I think that's how it has to be because we write the papers to kind of document our science. But like you said, it's a certain, you have to, it's like code switching. I mean, there's certain, you know, it took years for me to figure out how to write a scientific paper. 
because they're, you're writing to scientists, there's a certain way you're supposed to say things, there's a format, blah, blah, blah. That's not, that's not obvious. Um, the way we say things that, you know, it's kind of can be hilarious sometimes because it's so <laughs> like crazy. Um, some of the words that we say, uh, but even the podcast is a good example of that. This podcast was driven by wanting to have a larger uh, dissemination of what's going on um, and evidence-based practice. And, uh, you know, I was told when I started this podcast that it was a ridiculous idea. I mean, I'm sure you can relate to what, and, and not be surprised by that. Right, because our systems within academia don't oh, support you spending your time doing this. No way. It was like, oh my gosh, well, how are you going to write your papers? How are you going to do your grants? You're, you're, it's going to pull away. But actually, and I knew this was, you know, usually I'm quite a rule follower. This was a case where I knew in my gut, I was like, nope, that's not right. This actually, this will help me to think more deeply about the science I'm doing to make a difference. This is not going to take away from my science. It's going to add to the science. Yeah. And it absolutely has. Um, so I think that it is tricky because we have to break some of those systems that are in place and they're so hardwired. Yeah, just like clinicians don't, I mean, there almost no clinicians are given time to keep their nose, you know, keep up with things, right? Like keep up with the evidence base. Um, our systems in academia do not provide avenues in terms of time and you talk about currency, right? Like what's the currency within the discipline you work and the, dis the currency in our discipline? Part of it is grant funding. Part of it is research publications, meaning peer-reviewed research publications. And we haven't created the currency yet within our own reward systems to um, value that kind of work. Um, so we have a lot of work to do there too. I don't mean to say, and I know you, that's not what you're saying either, neither one of us are trying to say that we don't need the peer-reviewed publications because okay. that that's the core of being having believability in yeah. our work right our, this is actually valid we don't want yeah. to be rigor if we don't have the rigor we shouldn't yeah. be out there shouting it from the rooftops yeah. you need the rigor too uh, but we need the rigor and we need um much better communication um dissemination Absolutely. And I do think too, there, you know, there is a place for some very basic science that can occur that we need to answer like more, you know, systems kind of level basic science. But I think that even in doing basic science, I, I would be hard pressed, at least in my area in particular, to think about doing a basic science approach that doesn't have uh, an implementation arm to it. We are, we are at that point in our, you know, field. So I think that we can always make improvements in that way. Yeah, I'm having constant revelations about that just at the conference a few weeks ago, at your mm -hmm. conference a few weeks ago. Um, I hadn't been thinking about implementation science as much from the assessment perspective. And one of the um, short talks that, you know, we could go to at any point, I listened to one of those and I was like, oh my God, Bingham, you're so stupid. How did you not get that we need to have our stakeholders involved in all of this work too? So that's going to have to be, of course, you know, part of... Yep. The measurement work that we do, I mean, that's going to be the whole cl clinical feasibility component of it is going to be working with stakeholders to see what's what's relevant, what's not. You know, we have a good partner in John Heilman at um, University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee who's been thinking hard about some of those things and how do we, so we're very lucky to have him on our, on our team to help us think through those things. But, you know, it's just, again, like the old school people like me, it's, it takes my brain a while to kind of fully wrap my head around this. Whereas our, our younger, 
or at least newer up and coming people, they're starting out with this on the right foot. And that's very exciting stuff. It is exciting. I have the same thought. I'm glad to hear you say that because I have these thoughts often where I'm like, oh, I should have been doing that. Why am I not doing this? <laughs> like, well, yeah. So we're, we're still always learning, but that's yep. the exciting yep. part too. Well, I'm going to be mindful of time. We've had such a great discussion. I want to hear what you're working on now that you're most excited about. Uh, honestly, even though the work itself is tedious, the measurement work conceptually is, is one of the most exciting things. Um, the, the other kind of, we don't have time to get into it much, but, but broad strokes kind of stuff that I've been working on and thinking about has to do with making sure that we're using a developmental model mm-hmm. uh, when we're constructing our AAC interventions. So there are some interventions out there. I think, all, well, let me, I shouldn't say some, all AAC intervention kind of packages that are out there, they're all good at supporting language development in some ways, and they're also all ignoring fundamental components of language intervention in other ways. Um, And so I'm working on a paper right now, um, and I've been talking about it for some time, that's focusing on how do we apply a developmental model um, when why, first of all, why do we want to apply a developmental model? And then how, what are some things we want to think about as we're developing AAC interventions that fit within that? And, um, and there's a couple other offshoot little projects um, that we're doing that have to do with some specific interventions right now that are very popular, but that are really lacking in um, certain fundamental ways so that we end up making kids sound weird instead of having them sound like everybody else who talks in their community, we teach them to do things in odd ways. And there are reasons for that, but I don't, I think those reasons are often not good enough. And, and, and that there needs to be some real thought behind, if you're going to make choices to violate a developmental model, you better have a darn good reason. So I'm also really um, excited about that, that work as well. That's exciting. I can't wait to read that. I'll be looking forward to it for sure. I'll have to bring you back on to talk about it. I'd be happy to. (laughs) That'd be great. The last question I ask all of my guests is what is your favorite book from childhood or now? Okay. So um, I've listened to almost all of your episodes and I have the same, every time you ask that question, I have the same thoughts. I have to tell you what my honest thought is to that. Uh, My answer never changes. So it's my own childhood. So I, when I was a kid, I saved up money the very little money we had, I saved it up for two things. Um, one was stuffed animals, which is why we still use stuffed animals in my lab to this day. And I don't know if you can see them in the background in our Zoom stuffing. meeting, but I used to have some stuffing. sitting around. So stuffed animals, because I'm an animal fanatic. Um, and Peanuts books, Charles M. Schultz Peanuts books. Not the, I mean, yes, I watched the TV specials, not that bad. I was a hardcore reader of Peanuts. Um, and that's, and that, this was back in the, I mean, when I was really little and very young in the, in the seventies and, um, and every time we would go somewhere, I'd go look and see if there was a new peanuts book that was out and I devoured those books. And I, I love those books. So, you know, looking, even then I could have, I think I could have told you part of the reason why I love them, but, um, part of the reason was I felt like here was this author who was respecting my intelligence. Um, you know, I learned. I learned words like ophthalmologist mm. when Linus got his glasses and he went to an ophthalmologist. He didn't just say eye doctor. He said ophthalmologist. It's like, oh, what is that? And Lucy with her, you know, psychiatrist, five cents. What's a psychiatrist? <laughs> there is. So it was, the, you know, he used rich vocabulary. There were these amazing characters who had, all had their own lives. 
and their own personalities and didn't treat all kids as if they were the same. They were all these unique people who were very much alive to me mm -hmm. and um, all the adventures that they got into. Um, and then of course, all the Snoopy stories as well. Um, and I loved animals and dogs too. So um, all of those things just, uh, so I had many, many, many Peanuts books and just bought them every time they come in, came out. That's so cool. Did you keep any of them? Well, I did. I had them. And then my brother was born um, when I was 12. And then eventually he uh, it swiped slash perhaps I gave them to him. <laughs> I, I discovered that he had them. So I think most of them have gone by the wayside. And then it, my nephew um, got obsessed with peanuts too. So I started for years, every Christmas I bought him um, they started selling these compilations where they would do one year of all the peanuts and sell them. So for many years, I bought him a compilation book every year so he could have. So it's definitely has that uh, interest has run in the family, which of course is really sweet. That is so cool. Such a neat connection to have across the generations. Yeah, that's great. Well, I, it's like literally every book that my guests will talk about, I will go buy for my kiddos. So now I'm going to have to do that because they've watched the movie, <laughs> but they haven't seen the compilation. Oh, so I'm going to have to go do yeah, that. I mean, there were full, fully fledged stories that went on for strip after strip after strip after strip. And he was a genius. He was, he was really a genius. Wow, yeah. That's amazing. Well, thank you for sharing. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation and sharing the world of AAC with our listeners and talking more about implementation science. Well, I am absolutely thrilled to get to be on the podcast. I assign um, your podcast and one other one. My students have to do episodes in all of my classes now that are relevant to our material. They're just such high value and so accessible. So I just, I so appreciate all of the work that you do, Tiffany, including um, the really important work on this podcast. So oh, thank you so much. The feelings mutual. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time. Well, and it's the same thing that I've been saying to parents from day one as a clinician, which is to start off every conversation with a new parent with I have some expertise in speech and language and you have expertise on your child and we have to work together if we're going to make progress. So we both were on an even playing field here with different areas of expertise mm -hmm. and that we need to come together. And it's the same, whether it's educate, like whoever it is, it's not a bunch of baloney trying to blow smoke up their backsides to make know, them feel right? good. It's true.